HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. So what I want to do today is begin to look at trees as whos, as other living beings, not as whats, not as things that we have to, as Rebecca was saying, tell what to do, but things that we have to learn to live with, interact with, so that we give them certain things, they give us certain things. Uh, they're living beings like us, and in some ways, they are better made than us, and I'm going to argue that they're better made than us in certain ways. And then when we start to realize this and see how they grow, live, and die, it may give us new ideas about how we should be caring for them. Not ideas that necessarily contradict uh, what we've done before, but ideas that fill out what we've done before, show us why we're doing them, and perhaps suggest a few new approaches. Things that we thought were absolutely necessary may not be absolutely necessary. So I want to begin with a quote from the, the jazz player uh, Charlie Parker, which he said, he's supposed to have said to a young uh, sax player, uh, get your chops, get your charts, then throw them both away. And what I want to argue is that, or talk about, is the fact that this is the way that most, not all, but most trees live, like jazz musicians. And I wanted them to have, to play uh, uh, John Coltrane's favorite things before the talk, but we could do that. Because <laughs> you can see in favorite things, right? He plays that beautiful, you know, the beautiful tune from, uh, from um, Sound of Music, thank you very much. That's a beautiful tune from The Sound of Music. And then he plays it in higher registers, lower registers, moves it around, and then he just takes it apart. For the next 25 or 30 minutes, he's playing little bits of it this way, little bits of it that way, way going way up, jumping way down, and then starting it all over again with the tune again. And that's exactly the way that many trees grow. Here's an example with an ash tree. Let me just see, make sure I can work this. There we go. Okay, so here's the ash tree's chops. This is what it's inherited in A and B from all the ash trees before it. It's inherited making this basic statement of this is what it means to be an ash tree. This is the shape I will adopt as an ash tree. But that's only the very beginning of its life. And in fact, this part of the ash tree is the temporary part, which as the ash tree grows will very likely almost completely disappear. 
What then happens as the ash tree grows up, you look and see, is look, up here at the top, it's starting to do again what it did down here. So it's repeating itself, it's reiterating. So here and here are basically this statement being made again uh, at the tops of the tree. And then as the tree continues to grow in its life, it will simply do that again and again in wave after wave of reiteration, which is why mature trees look the way they do and not simply like this little tree that we find in the nursery, which is basically just the tree's first statement of, this is kind of what I'm gonna build on. So there's its chops, and here it is kind of filling out its charts, and we'll talk a little later about throwing them away. So there said to be maybe three million, three trillion large trees in the world. Interestingly enough, this kind of basic statement of chops, um, there are only about two dozen ways in which all of them can grow. And you would think that if that were the case, they would all look absolutely the similar, all alike, but they don't look all alike, basically because not only are they able to reiterate in these predictable ways, but also able to respond to everything in the environment around them, including us pruners, uh, in ways that changes their shape. So we get three trillion unique trees out of only about two dozen models. Come on, baby. Yeah, up, ah, come back, come back, come back, come back. There we go, okay. So there's the two dozen models, and a wonderful guy named uh, Francis Allais uh, was the one, uh, he and his colleagues, Olderman and Tomlinson, studying tropical trees. They kept noticing that a lot of them looked similar. And when they started going out, their, their main way of working was not by taking data in numbers, but by sitting in trees or beside trees and drawing them. There are wonderful pictures of the 80-year-old Francis Allais way up in a tropical tree, leaning back on a branch and drawing the one next to it. So they began to see, what are these actually made out of? And they began to find that, look, even though there are trillions and trillions of trees, they all come into about these 24 different patterns. And they named the patterns, or models as they called them, for famous botanists who'd studied trees that had that particular uh, architecture to them. And they called it tree architecture. But it's not just static architecture, it's dynamic architecture. Because all of these are those chops or bases on the, on the or those chops on the basis of which uh, all trees will grow and grow to some tremendously uh, tall heights with a lot of uh, thoughts as they go on that change their way of being. Here is our sugar maple. A lot of the good work that's been done in this recently has been done by people, uh, French language people, but this is a new world French language people. This is the work of Jean Millet, uh, who is a wonderful uh, botanist and student of tree architecture in Quebec, Canada. Um, so she's showing how a sugar maple will typically, when it's a tiny plant, be working on the basis of one particular model. Then it will make its major statement on the basis of another model. And then as it grows up, it will begin to make use of yet a couple of other models. So all of these are nested in the growth of this plant as it grows, which already gives it a lot more diversity than you would expect from something that simply formulaically uh, is repeating itself. So the way the trees, you tell what model a tree has to see what choice it's made, it's a little bit like uh, the stops that you can play on the saxophone, right? Closed, open, closed, open, closed, open. So there are basically six different choices that every tree can make. One is, do you branch or not? And if you're a palm, yeah, who needs a branch, right? Or do we branch only at the bottom, or do we branch up in the tops? 
And you know, if I'm a bamboo, yeah, what am I gonna branch up in the tops for? I'm just gonna branch on the ground and make all of these stems which each look like individual bamboos but are actually all part of a single plant. Another one is do we grow continually or do we take a rest every year? In our part of the world, because our part of the world has a cold season, most of the plants take a rest, except for the ones that are in our greenhouses, take an annual rest. Um, another very important matter is do you grow your branches upwards, that is orthotropically, or do you grow them outwards, that is plagiotropically? Do you grow them sideways or upwards, which makes a great difference as we'll see in a minute. And when you flower and fruit, do you do so at the growing tips or along the sides of branches? If you do so at the growing tips, then your plant has to rethink how it's going to go because it can't grow past that flower anymore. So that will change the architecture of the plant. And finally, and this is very important, particularly in our temperate zones, where trees want to be extremely diverse, able to make changes as they grow, do your branches grow only upwards? that is orthotropically, only sideways plagiotropically, or do they change back and forth? Do they switch? And one of the key things that a lot of our trees do is they're able to do that switch. So there on the top is an upward growing stem that then turns, uh, so that's an orthotropic stem that turns plagiotropic. And here is a plagiotropic, that is a sideways stem that turns orthotropic. And if you can do this, it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of finding your way to the sun. One of the reasons that conifers are kind of so stolid in many cases, things like firs and spruces compared to um, a broadleaf plants, is that broadleaf plants in the old days when they were first there had to find their way. The conifers ruled the world. And the uh, other plants had to find their way amongst them. So they would find little places in the sun and they became very expert at moving this way, moving that way, which is where a lot of the diversity of the of the uh, architecture came from. So there are, about, there are 23 known models in the whole world. In the temperate zone, we only use about seven of them. And I'm just gonna show you a few of them right now. Um, this is the model of Lewinberg. And it's obvious that it is sumac that is one of the main things that we see in the model of Lewinberg. And you can see what it does. It grows straight up orthotropically, but then it flowers at its growing tip. But it flowers at its growing tip, it then has to remodel itself and sprout from below that growing tip, so it basically bifurcates. And it does that again and again and again. Is this actually, can you hear me? Yes. Good, okay. Um, it does it again and again and again, which gives you this kind of broad-shouldered plant, right, that keeps getting broader and broader. It's really lousy at getting tall, because it's gotta make this change every time it can't grow continuously into the sky, it always has to make these changes, but it's really great at getting wide, which is one reason why they're so good at disturbed sites. Like you see them like, it almost looks like they're running along uh, highway medians, right? Like on super highways, because they're very good at colonizing open soil and spreading out and taking up space. So that's kind of what their model is about. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well. Let's see here. I don't want to press it. There we go. Okay. So here's the same thing being done in the desert. In the desert where you don't have a lot of competition with other plants is a good place for you to spread out. So this is the Joshua tree 
uh, in Southern California. The only place it is, I was a little boy in this landscape. And when I was a kid, I thought the Joshua tree was the normal tree in the entire world. And I was shocked when I went somewhere else and saw that it wasn't. So every time I see a sumac, I'm like, oh, it's a little like a Joshua tree because it has that same model. It flowers and it sprouts from below. But it's not one of the most common models in the temperate zone. Uh, I may have to stand over here because this does not seem to be working. There we go. Uh, this is one of the real, the models that is most commonly used in the, in the uh, temperate world. Uh, it's Rao's model. And it, had, it goes straight up, all the trunk is straight up growing, and the branches are pretty much equivalent to it. They always want to turn upwards. So everything in this stem is orthotropic. Uh, that is, it's upward growing. However, if anything fails, like the, if, your, if your top fails, what's lower down can immediately replace it. Right? So that's what we see very frequently in our, in our temperate trees is the fact that we can, in fact, as pruners, if something's bad in the tops, go down to the lateral and we'll get a new leader being formed by the plant. And so our oaks do this, our uh, maples do this, our ash trees do this. This is our, their model. Well, maybe we'll have to do this. Yeah. Okay, and one more. There we are with a couple of maples and then an oak. Let's go next. Yeah, it's not working. Um, so this is a model that is also very common, but it's only common in the conifers. This is a very, very definite model, a model of Massart. So especially uh, spruces and firs work on this model. And they have an upright growing trunk, so that's orthotropic, and they have extremely plagiotropic branches, and those branches never vary. So this, among the jazz players that are trees, is probably the least creative type. <laughs> because they basically don't make big changes, they simply continue on this model their whole lives, so we're looking there at a tall, uh, uh, probably spruce that is growing uh, basically in the same model it was when it was a little tree. Whoopsie, I skipped one. There's the model of Troll. This is my favorite model because it's absolutely crazy. And the, the interesting thing is it's the craziest model that has the most trees in the temperate zone. 20 or 30% of temperate trees work on this model. And you know, we see things like pin oaks that go straight for the sky and we go, yeah, 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 that's kind of normal. But it's not normal for a lot of trees like for elm trees, like for honey locust trees, like for beaches. Uh, there are many trees that seem to spread rather than go upwards, that prefer that. And that is as a consequence of this model of troll very often, which is a model that where basically everything is plagiotropic. Everything wants to go to the side. And the only reason it can go upwards is it kind of almost as an afterthought the branches at the end of the season, at the top of the stem, will erect a little bit higher so that they can put out another plagiotropic branch on the other side. And how plants figured out how to do that, I don't know, but it's interesting that that's kind of what you see when you're looking at a beautiful, big, vase-shaped uh, American elm, is you're seeing the consequence of those plagiotropic branches, then standing up a little, then moving out, then standing up. And even some conifers do it. It's uh, uh, particularly famous are uh, hemlocks. 
that will constantly be switching off. They'll, they'll, the leader will be lateral and then it will be pushed up a little and then another leader will follow it. So lots of different ways and there's just basically the model of troll which is to go upwards and then sprout again and then push that upwards at the end of the season and so forth and so on. And you can make a, as we know from American Elms, make a tree that's 120 or 130 feet high doing this. Um, this is a model that the Alanthus prefers and I being a person who I actually like Alanthus trees. I said this in, uh, at a, a conference in Malaga, Spain and they almost walked out. Um, but Alanthus trees have their place, right? And one place is we do such screwy things to our soils that basically often Alanthus trees are the only things that like it because they like almost anything. Um, so, but they have this wonderful way of growing that makes them able to do all kinds of screwy stuff. So the model of Cariba is key in that it grows up and it always makes at least a fork. There are two here, but sometimes there'll be three or four leading branches. And then in the next year, one of them outcompetes the others and it gets to be the new leader and the other one becomes a lateral and it flowers and does all its stuff on the side. But meantime, we're going up further. And again, we decide one of them gets to keep going up and the other gets converted into a lateral. And that's just a, an Alanthus tree on the edge of a vacant lot in Queens um, that is doing exactly that. You can see that each one of those has like three or four competing leaders here. One of those will declare itself, will win the race and be the new leader and the others will become lateral branches. So this is just examples of some of the ways in which, uh, in which these plants are able to work. Uh, I had the great, when I was in Malaga, I had the great uh, privilege of talking after Francis Allé, who's just, at this point an 84 year old man. And I'm gonna do, uh, forgive me if you speak French, I'm gonna do a very bad imitation of Francis Allé. So Francis Allé's substance of his talk was, human beings, we have 78 organs. They do not work very well. We die very young. Trees have three organs, root, stem, and leaf. They live much longer than we do. And sometimes when they're almost dead, they live again. So that is pretty much the best defense I've ever heard. And in fact, if you want, there is, in the, what I'm gonna give you at the end, there's one of Alain's recent presentations in French, alas, but he talks a great deal. He tries to say everything that human beings can do and prove that trees can do it better. <laughs> anyway, so even with only those three organs, a tree can live a longer time and also be, they're all unique individuals with the possible exception of, uh, of uh, uh, firs and spruces. Um, what do they know that we don't, what do they know that we don't? They know how with that very simple module of three to be able to repeat themselves in endlessly different ways. So, this is just a basic example of a reiteration. This is a place where on a tree, you know, it's filling out its chart. It's beginning to do its regular growth, but then something may happen. There may be a drought, more sun may appear. There may be someone may compact the soil or cut some roots. And so it can respond by putting on new growth in a way that will allow the, uh, the tree to make more food and so be able to live better. And you know, this is representing the fact that basically it does have even though this base of it is basically becomes part of the circulation system of the tree, these are functioning as roots for this stem and the stem and the leaves. So that reiteration again and again will make the plant. And you can see in many tropical trees, uh, you, this is a drawing of Alais, you can see, you can often see the roots 
from a scaffold branch growing on the surface of the tree. So they actually grow all the way down the tree almost semi-independently. So it's one of the reasons that some people say trees are not really individuals but colonies. And this one is not, is in, a, is in Kew Gardens, in an oak in Kew Gardens. And look, there's the root from this branch going straight down. There we go again, there we go. So adaptive reiteration is what we call when the tree is growing up normally, filling out its first form, and then ramifying that first form as it goes up and up and up. That is one kind of reiteration. And this is, again, Alay's magnificent picture. So here's the, uh, the young tree. That's its chops. That's what I'm going to make myself out of, says this tree. Then, as it continues to grow upward, it begins to repeat this form in what will become its permanent scaffold branches. So very often, what we see at the bottom here is not going to be there forever. In fact, if the tree has a lot of competition around it, very often, all the branches that were here in the young tree will not be there in the mature tree. So, but what will be there will be these, and note that these are often based on forks, growing out of forks. So they will grow up and create these scaffold branches, but then as they grow up, they themselves will make wave after wave of new repetitions. And as the tree grows, those repetitions occur at smaller and smaller scales, which is why when we look at mature trees, they kind of look like a cabbage, you know, or a cauliflower. At the tops, they're growing only a small amount. So there's really large, from the trunk, of course, very large reiteration. Then there is almost uh, tree-like reiteration, smaller tree-like, then almost like they call it frutescent, fruit tree type, uh, reiteration, then at smaller scale, almost as though they were shrubs, reiteration, and finally an herbaceous layer where there's only very, very little bit of woody matter and they're hardly extending at all, but they're growing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. This is the level, the herbaceous level, that uh, Ale and his colleagues named the monkey's playing field. Because when they're in, uh, in tropical trees, basically that's where the monkeys are hanging out. So all of this is in the normal reiteration of a tree, and it's not only in tropical zones. This is in, uh, uh, these are, this is my memorial to a great grove of trees uh, in the uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard that are now, alas, turned into a Wegmans supermarket. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with a Wegmans supermarket, but these were great trees to lose. But you can see in them how they have that very large growth going up. It then gets somewhat smaller. It then gets somewhat smaller. It then gets somewhat smaller. And finally, it is simply herbaceous, right? And the same here, this is a great American, was a great American elm. There it goes up into the sky, smaller, 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 and finally herbaceous. It's one reason why when we're thinking, and we'll talk a little bit in a moment about what this may mean for pruning of trees, it's very important to know what stage we're at in a tree's life when we're thinking about how to prune it. And we may prune it in very different ways at different stages in its life. Mm -hmm. Ah, there we go. So some trees, as I said, and, and I, I refer to them in, in, in my book, Sproutlands, as dumb conifers. I don't mean anything bad about conifers, except that that's what they often will do. Not all of them. I mean, white pines and, and hemlocks are very creative. But you know, basically, uh, firs and spruces, just they, they don't really repeat themselves. They just make their basic statement grander and grander and grander and bigger and bigger. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's a lot more um, adaptable if you repeat yourself. So here's an example of the young tree, the young tree growing taller, then it begins to repeat itself in the, its crown, and then there are waves and waves of repetition throughout the tree's lives. 
And typically in uh, temperate trees, there may be between five and 10 layers of this reiteration in a tree. So that's what it's doing um, normally. That's its chops and that's its charts, but that's only the beginning of what happens. Because then we have what some people call traumatic reiteration and what I would also like to suggest might be called creative re reiteration. Whenever a tree is damaged, and that can be by a storm that breaks a branch, that can be by some <clears throat> person cutting it down, uh, that can be by someone pollarding it, that is cutting back the stems to the trunk at, a, at an altitude, or it can be for one reason or another the tree is suddenly bent over and sometimes they'll intentionally do that in order to find the light. Uh, and all those times, the tree can sprout again. It can reiterate that very same pattern it used to begin with. It can reiterate it uh, from a broken stem. It can reiterate it where you've been cut back. It can reiterate it often even from the trunk. And it can reiterate it as leader branches on what were once lateral branches. And here is just another uh, image of that happening. So a fallen stem is creating a new reiteration. There's a reiteration from the base. There's a place where a stem has been broken and is reiterated at the top. Here's a root sprout. Here's another kind of reiteration from the base of this tree. Uh, here is another re reiteration as the tree bends over and begins to release dormant buds or turn its lateral branches into vertical sprouts. And here's another where it's been cut at the top and is sprouting back again. So a great deal of what happens in trees happens in that way. Uh, and that's why we don't have trees that are all looking the same but are all looking different. Um, and why in our cities in particular we have some really, really interesting tree shapes and strategies and creative ways to live with what we've given them. Mm -hmm. Yep, come back, come back, there we go. This is one of my favorite London plane trees. Anyone notice what's, what's happening with it? So this is a London plane tree, and don't ask me why this happened, but somehow on a, like an 18 inch trunk, the 18 inch trunk is gone. It's lost, right? So when the 18-inch trunk was lost, the tree didn't kind of just put one back up and say, okay, I'll just take a branch and we'll have a branch there. It decided to create what looked to be about eight to 10 new London plane trees, <laughs> right? Right up here, right? And, the, and it's gonna fight it out. And over time, probably one, two, or three of these will be better. And probably one of them, maybe this central one here, will really win the day and some of the others will become laterals and some of the others will just go away. But look at the amazing ability of the tree not to give up. Say, well, yes, so I lost my top. So I lost three quarters of my leaves. That's okay, I'll put them back. Now, that's traumatic. We don't want that to happen, but a tree is able to respond to it. This is at my favorite um, uh, place in uh, uh, San Mateo County, California, which is a, a huge uh, forest of redwoods called Big Basin. And Big Basin is wonderful, and redwoods among conifers are just amazing because redwoods sprout just like broadleaf trees do. So when you see a 2,000-year-old redwood in Big Basin, if you look at the base, you can see from its root system that it was a sprout, that it was part of a fairy ring of sprouts that may have started 2,000 years ago from a 2,000-year-old tree then. So they're extraordinarily creative. They're also kind of bullies. Uh, and so they take up all the light. So in order to find the light, trees that normally do one thing have to do another. I haven't taken, shown you a picture of tan oak. But tan oak is usually a nice upright growing tree, but tan oak in Big Basin in parts has turned into a ground cover. It just creeps across the ground at about a foot and a half high, and then all of a sudden, 
It's got an opportunity to go up and up it goes like the normal tree it was meant to be. And these are California live oaks, which normally again go straight up and get lateral branches. They had no light at all, so they said, ha ha, they put in a path here, they're keeping the redwoods off it, so I'll go over the path and I will sprout there. Is that when you start doing this and start looking at this, forests are never dull again, even in the middle of winter, because there's so much happening to them all the time that shows you how the trees are responding. And some of our trees which are most, uh, um, how should we say, maligned, if you read about black locust in the literature, you know, just call it up online and you'll get all these horrible things about how invasive and awful it is and how we should get rid of them all. And in fact, in New York State, you're not allowed to buy, sell, and plant it unless it's in a place where it's been before. And thank God, there's hardly any place in New York where a black locust has not been before. Um, but this is one way that they get around, is this one was under a trellis. So it had to find its way out of the trellis. So it was kind of trying some sprouts on its stem that weren't working so well, so they weren't. So it just started growing out superficial roots. And from those roots, it sprouted. So basically, this plant is walking out into the light by means of that ability to reiterate. Sometimes this occurs in collaboration with human beings. Uh, this is a chestnut tree, an ancient chestnut, uh, five or 600 years old, in the north of Spain in a small town called Leitza. That's my baseball cap for scale. Um, this tree is, cut every, is still cut every 20 years, so these are about ready to be cut. They use it like we use black locust because it's very good at uh, not decaying in contact with the ground. It's very good for fence posts, it's very good for lintels, it's very good for anything in contact with the ground. Also, of course, it fruits in a way that is very delicious to both human beings and to animals. So a very useful tree, but this is a chestnut pollard that was started hundreds of years ago when it was a much smaller tree and is still alive today. So you can see that people working in concert with trees in this way can do things to them that seem to us fairly dramatic, that not only do not make the trees die or live shorter lives, but in fact make them live longer lives. The trees now in Europe that are the oldest trees alive are all trees that were once pollarded. So it's an interesting, but we're gonna talk, I hope we'll have time to talk about a little bit about doing that properly. Here's an example, especially tropical trees love to work by means of their roots. So here are a bunch of roots falling from the sky or falling from the tree and they will root and help to expand the tree and they can grow out by the branch growing out, dropping a root, growing out, dropping a root. The tree that famously does this is banyan tree, right? Banyan will actually begin up in the crown of some other tree and then it will drop a root from that crown and then it will basically strangle the other tree and continue and sometimes you can walk for half a mile and not get out of one banyan tree. So it's amazing how this reiteration process can allow trees. This is this one of my favorite crazy trees. This is on Randall's Island and it's an ailanthus. It's a very, ailanthus is just matchlessly creative in bad situations, right? So this thing is about the worst place you can imagine. No water, no light, no nothing. So you can see that it wasn't very happy and it died back at least once but every time it died back, it sprouted again. And these, I think, are root sprouts going out here. So look at the thing. It's finding its way out into the light in every possible direction. And uh, how it's done that, uh, probably it's done that simply by experiment. But again, reiteration is permitting this plant to manage to survive in a situation, you know, where, where you could reasonably expect it to have given up. So this is the power of plants to reiterate and stay alive. But even so, they go through a life cycle. And one of the important things that we have to learn, and uh, I feel like we're still at the beginning of learning, uh, is how their life cycle works. It isn't exactly like ours. Even though this drawing that Neville Fay made, great English arborist Neville Fay made, um, 
showing the small tree growing up to a mature tree and then growing down to a small tree again. Um, it's kind of modeled on that ages of man drawing, you know, where man stands up and then, but you know, the, the end of the man stands up one is really short. Uh, the end of the tree one is just as long as the mature phase and just as long as the small phase. The Pope John Dryden is famous for having said, and I don't think he made this up, I think he just quoted it, uh, he described an oak tree as 300 years growing, 300 years living, and 300 years dying. He might have exaggerated the number of years in each one, but it's important that he said equal amounts because one of the things we're learning about trees is that according to the stage they're in, we can do things to keep them happy. Even as a tree is getting smaller, we can, if we keep ahead of it's getting smaller, keep it safe so that even in a very urban area, we may be able to maintain that tree instead of removing it because it has fungal fruiting bodies or dieback or hollows or things that in the past we would have said we have to remove that tree. Um, here's just another example that's more schematic of the same thing. All of these stages are growing up and reaching maturity and you see the repeated levels of reiteration at smaller and smaller scales and then the gradual, gradual dying back. And as you can see, as it begins to die back, it starts to make reiterations on top of its stems, on top of the existing stems and then finally on its trunk. And this is the stage at which it could actually root as these are rooting again and begin to grow up again in a process that's called Phoenix regeneration. Um, how am I doing time-wise, Joe? 12 minutes. I've got 12 minutes? <laughs> okay, time to speed up. Phoenix regeneration. <laughs> okay, th this is very quick. This is a terrible, I mean, it's a wonderful tree. This is, the, the, uh, these, these people had a like 300 acre estate and they had me assess all their trees. This is on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. They said, what tree is, uh, they, they brought me around the corner after looking at these 100 foot tall oaks, 100 foot tall pecans, and they sheepishly brought me to look at this. And they said, what do you think? And I looked at it and I went, oh my God. Now, it's an Osage orange, the one with the, the puke green cannonballs, yeah. Uh, so, and Michael Durr doesn't like it at all. And I understandably doesn't like it at all. But this one, look what it had done. It had fallen over and its lateral branches had become new trees. This one had not finished becoming a new tree, so it doesn't have its own roots, but this one already has its own roots. So if this should go away, we have another tree there. That's called Phoenix Regeneration. I'll just quickly show you some examples of it. It can be done by roots. This is one in Japan where this Zelkova, as this dies, has another way to go because it's got a new root. And here are two Brucinetia in Madrid in Spain. And there, the one in front is just being a regular Brucinetia, but you can see that the one in back is growing from what was originally a root like this. That's a new plant growing out of the plant that is dying. So it's possible for trees to come back again and again. This is in Fresh Kills Landfill. Uh, this is uh, my associate Wayne admiring a black locust whose fallen root has sprouted. So if that thing can put itself in the ground, it will continue the great work that these trees are doing at Fresh Kills Landfill to restore a, uh, a landscape. And there it is in, uh, uh, in the tree on the Somerset levels where it can come back again. So let's just quickly look at a few things that this might mean for our tree care, for how we might look differently at trees. If they have this way of growing that goes up and up and up, reiterating itself, and then begins to reiterate itself in different ways as it gets smaller, how might this encourage us to look at them? One thing is to see the real reasoning behind what we call structural or formative pruning, where we will take out competing leaders and give a very young tree that's just making its first statement about itself, that's just filling out its chops, 
a way to make that film as clean as possible. Because if it's going to live for us in a city and become a large, long-lived tree, we want it to have good legs to stand on. So this is using its own wish to create that place to stand on, and we can simply adjust it a little to make sure that that's going to work in a way that is useful to the tree and useful to us. And likewise, we sometimes have to raise the crowns of trees over time. And it turns out that because most of this lower crown is actually crown that would have been temporary in the tree anyway, we can slowly but surely, not all in one shot, raise the crown of this tree when these are still quite young and the, and the wounds can close easily without doing any serious damage to the tree because the tree would likely have done it itself anyway. Can I get a few extra minutes for this not working? <laughs> there we go. Okay, Here's a, here are the two things that kind of blew me away. And this is, there's a wonderful Frenchman named Christophe Drenoux and uh, also Jean Millet from Quebec. Ah, then it gives me two, three. Okay, here we go. So here we're going up, 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 up. And there's the, there's the, the, uh, the, the tree making its basic statement. And here it is making its first uh, scaffold branches. And look at the big fork that's there. That's a big codominant stem. We are often taught that codominant stems are uniformly bad things. Here it is happening on a chestnut in John Millet's drawing. There it's beginning and there it's growing. So there again, we have, and that's the same thing in, in close up, we have a serious fork. When you have this kind of fork, one of the things we ought to start looking at is that if it's a natural fork, it probably isn't a bad thing. It's probably not something we should be worrying too much about. There is some suggestion now that such forks are just as strong as branch connections. I'll show you something about that. If, on the other hand, it is an accidental fork, a response to damage, and especially if it has included bark, yeah, then we're probably going to want to do something about it. We'll have to see what. But we can make a lot less intervention in the left-hand case than we, uh, we have been used to. This is Duncan Slater's work, and he's still just beginning this, but he's looking at the way these uh, forks grow and showing how the forces work in them when the wind acts on both sides. And you can see how the tissue of the plant in this section, you can see, is actually miming how the forces work on it. And he's studying quite a bit about also how right at the base here of a codominant stem, often the tissues are changed. So they're very dense tissues where the, ray, the, the sheets of ray cells actually interlock in a way that makes the plant less liable to fail. So we got to start looking at this and looking at forks and distinguishing between forks we like and forks we don't like. And so not all of them are going to be bad. There we go. Uh, water sprouts too, and I'm just calling these water sprouts, you can call them epicormic sprouts, you can call things that appear either because they're coming from dormant or latent buds or because they are being uh, generated anew by the cambium. They may sprout upwards like this orthotropically, they may sprout outwards like this plagiotropically, or they may just kind of noodle about and not be quite sure what to do. And instead of thinking of these as defects, which I often do, I'm often out there thinking, okay, got to get rid of those dang things. Um, there really can often be a help to help us understand what the tree is doing. Here's a healthy tree that's just doing its normal reiteration at a smaller and smaller scale as it becomes a mature tree, right? But then what happens? Uh, let's see the tree comes under stress, and it's trying to do the same thing. The sprouts are coming from the same places, but they're not able to grow very well. So you see this tree, ah, something's wrong with this baby. Maybe it was insects, maybe it was a bad uh, year, maybe the soil was compacted, maybe some roots were cut. But we may have different interactions to try and help the tree, but if it is helped, it can respond in a couple of different ways. And one is to show the, throw those orthotropic sprouts. So you see all the dieback here? 
but then the orthotropic sprouts are coming and taking over the tree, so it's going upwards again. So such a tree could be completely resilient, and having those sprouts is key to its resilience, and when we see them, those upright sprouts on a tree that's not too old a tree, we think, oh, that's the tree trying to come back and recover its full height. And sometimes that will not happen, and instead we will get plagiotropic, we will get sideways facing sprouts, and those sprouts will grow outwards and may make a new tree with a smaller crown than the tree before, but still a tree that can live many, many years. The only thing we don't like to see is what are called ageotropic sprouts. That are sprouts that come out all over the stem. And you can see how distinctive they look in the, in the large picture uh, to the right. They look very chaotic, and they are very chaotic, and they're the plant's effort to say, oh my god, I better do something. But this is often not something that's going to work. So when you see a plant in this state, then you're thinking, you know, not only do I not want to remove these sprouts, but I may have to remove or seriously reduce or do something to try and give this tree a better chance to live because it's in decline and maybe an irreversible decline. When a tree gets very old, we can do kinds of pruning on it uh, where it's in that stage where it is trying to grow smaller that will help it with that task. So this is in Kew Gardens, a big old oak in Kew Gardens. They've done very moderate pruning. Uh, retrenchment, there's arguments to whether to call this retrenchment or reduction. I don't think it matters very much. But in trees of this age, the intent of it is to stimulate those interior branchlets, see them all, to grow. And the reason is that this tree is becoming less and less stable with these very long branches because its root system is likely, even kept in a very beautiful place like Kew Gardens, is likely not as good as it once was. So it's going to show dieback. But we can respond to that dieback by trying to stimulate interior growth, which is what happens in that stage of a tree's growing down anyway. It makes it less heavy at the end, and we can, over time, prune it inward and inward and inward until we have a much smaller tree. So a tree that in the old days I as an arborist would have thought, oh my god, I lost a big branch, there's a fungal fruiting body there, I've got to remove it. No, if I retrench it, I may be able to keep it for 50, 100, a long time more. And here you can, okay, one more, one more. Ah, thank you. So here's deeper retrenchment also at Kew Gardens on a big chestnut, and it's taking advantage of the fact that this plant has already begun that last stage of regeneration that leads to Phoenix regeneration. So in order to protect people who are walking on this path, they've taken the entire top out of this tree and it still is growing fine, and in fact, it is strengthening those lower stems. So by knowing the way a tree grows, and how it lives and dies, and the periods of time over which it can do this, we can do a tremendous amount to keep working with that tree um, for many more years than we used to think. And I think many of the things that we used to think of as defects really are not. Let me just quickly look, do I have a second? Yes, two seconds. Two seconds, <laughs> excellent. So another place that we've been starting to, one of the things that motivated me to find, start finding out about this was we had to produce uh, pollard trees for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And when they called us, they said, do you know how to do this? Uh, the Olin uh, called us and said, do you know how to do this? Make pollards. And I said, sure I do. I teach pruning for Charles. So um, I, am, uh, I do basically know how to make pollards. And we made some experimental ones, but I thought we should go find out. Anyway, we did find out and we started to prune them. But interestingly enough, when you look at a tree's life cycle, one of the things that we're doing in pollarding is starting with a very young tree. That's a crucial thing. You are not pollarding unless you are starting with a young tree. 
When you're working on larger trees and you cut back on four, five, and six inch branches, you are topping them. Or you may be making reduction cuts, but you are not pollarding them. I'm not saying you don't all, in some cases you may want to do that. in the south of Jersey uh, and then and you can see that we're intentionally making heading cuts on these in an effort to be sure that they sprout because if you if you plant a pollard for somebody and it doesn't sprout you've got a problem so there they are transplanted into the, into the Met and they so what we're intending to do here is to take advantage of a tree's ability to reiterate uh, creatively, particularly on young stems, and to do so for a very, very, very long time. And we're trying in this way to create trees that will stay at a particular height. There are some of the cuts. That's uh, a couple of years ago, so we're on wood that's getting up towards an inch. And there's the use of it. Uh, you can have people sitting under this. This is in 2016. They're much fuller now than they were then. So they really are covering the space. People can sit under them. They're not going to drop big branches on them. Because we continually cut them back, we're causing retrenchment in their root systems. So it's going to be a very long time before these roots cause damage to the sidewalks, if ever. Also, they brilliantly used uh, silva cells, which is a way to not keep the soils uncompacted underneath these trees. Uh, so they were able to keep them uh, for a long, 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 long time. We hope every year when I go out to prune them in late February or early March, I have a, a dream which says, this time you've killed them. <laughs> but I'm beginning know, learning more and more about what trees have learned over millions of years about how to grow and stay alive, that they know a lot more about this than I do. And they can teach me a lot as they are now. So here's just some stuff that you all can uh, th These are unfortunately mostly in French. A few are not. There's one of uh, Christophe Drenu's things is translated into English and is available in the Journal of, of, of uh, international forestry. Halle Oldman and Tomlinson's Tropical Trees and Forests is one of the great tree books of the 20th century uh, and is available in English. And John Millier's has not yet been translated, the last one there, but uh, I hope will be translated soon because it's a wonderful book about how to care for trees in these situations. And that is it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.